have for a great afternoon session started off um, with George Megalogenis, who's an author and journalist, um, 30 years experience in the media. Glad there's somebody else with, um, has been here at least as long as I have. Um, and really, uh, George has um, a fantastic reputation for being uh, rooted in data and evidence and facts and reporting it as it is, and you can rely on George to do that, um, and particularly focuses on the political, social and economics, uh, economic context of Australia. His book, The Australian Moment, Moment I should say, won the 2013 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Nonfiction, 2012 Walkley Award for Nonfiction, and formed the basis for his ABC documentary series, Making Australia Great. Notice the again bit was kind of missing, but George can um, talk us through that. And um, also in 2015, wrote and presented the documentary tribute to former Australian Prime Minister, the late Malcolm Fraser. Life wasn't meant to be easy, don't we all know that? Please welcome George. Now, um, Norman could probably attest to this. I could probably do this off the cuff and remember every number specifically, but I'm not going to do that for you. I will have another look to find them as we set up. Um, now, the reference to um, the TV show Making Australia Great, there is a bit of a dispute in Canberra about whether Donald Trump plagiarised the title for his campaign. I think someone has claimed that he had um, taken out the patent in and around the time the show was went to air. Now, some of you might remember Kim Beasley, who was ambassador to Washington until recently. He did say publicly that he, he, he thinks it's an open and shut case that Trump did pinch the title, which means under uh, trademark, and if there's ever a trade war with the US, uh, we, may, um, we may hit him up for the, uh, for the royalties. Now, what I, what I want to do is give you a, a presentation. I'm going to talk up the country, and I'm especially going to talk up uh, the migration side of the equation and why migration in the 21st century, especially the way it's playing out in Australia, is not only uh, reinforcing a story of the last 60 or 70 years that we like telling the rest of the world, because we've been a pretty good host, a pretty welcoming host since the end of the Second World War, but a more interesting story I think is unfolding in the last 15 years, certainly by the last 15 years I mean the first decade and a half of the 21st century, our migration story today is a global role model for the 21st century. And in fact, if you were to blank, uh, blank uh, page a country and design it from scratch, it would actually look, in, in terms of its ethnic mix, roughly the way Australia looks today. And the Bureau of Statistics just put out its, uh, its census report for 2016, which I'll drill down to in a minute. And essentially, the, the sort of headline story is about 28% of the population is born overseas, another 21%, 22% have at least one parent that is an immigrant, uh, people like myself, which means just under half the country is either first or second generation migrant. Now, that is quite an extraordinary statistic uh, because the two things that underpin that particular growth in the migrant side of the Australian uh, population is that we were starting literally from scratch after the end of the Second World War. At the end of the Second World War, and this is the country that my father would have arrived in in the early 50s when he came off a boat in 1951 in uh, Port Melbourne, that Australia, the Australia that opened the doors again after the end of the Second World War, was 90% Australian-born, 
Of the other 10% that were born overseas, five of that 10% were from England. It was the whitest we'd ever been in our history outside of the early colonial period. This is obviously settler history I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the indigenous population at this point. And that Australia, which was 90% Australian born, 10% overseas born, were five of that 10 from England. The uh, Australia that my father arrived in, only 1% of the population in those days was from Europe. 1% from Europe. By the time I went to high school, started high school in the 1970s, in the mid-1970s, that 1% had become 8%. And the Europeans were the, lar the single largest collection of overseas-born people in Australia. I'm going to read you out the composition of the Australian population in the mid-1970s, just before the Vietnamese boat people came. Because the interesting thing about how quickly we went from a very Anglo to a Anglo-European population is that speed of that change in our diversity, literally in a generation, uh, actually accelerated once uh, we opened the door to Asia. So I'll just find that particular stat, and my apologies if it takes me two seconds to find it, because I did lose everything on the floor a second ago. Seventy-seven, I'll give you the 77 figure. Uh, population's just under 11 million. Two out of 10 were migrants by this point, 2.7 million. 1947, one out of 10 were migrants. 1977, two out of 10 are migrants. The Europeans, just under 1% of the population in 47, 8% of the population in 77. They're a million strong, by the way, the European born in Australia at that point, uh, exceeding the English, which were 800,000, and matching the total of 1 million from the UK and Ireland. Now, 1977, the reason why I mentioned 1977, a bit of a, a, a pivotal point, because the Vietnamese boats started to arrive then. The Asian-born in Australia are just 1% of the population, essentially where the Europeans were in 1947. Now, the Europeans peaked at eight. Today, when I look at the ethnic map of Australia, the Asians didn't get to eight, they're at 11 today. There are precisely one-third of all migrants in Australia today are born in Asia. And half of all the migrants in Australia today are either from China or India. And this is where, especially I look at a state like New South Wales, this is where the story gets very interesting. I just want you to hold the thought, the headline thought, that half the Australian population is either first or second generation. And consider the last time Australia ran a big open-door migration policy. In the 19th century, when our doors were literally open, we were a colony of... Uh, of Great Britain, between the foundation of Melbourne in 1835 and the peak of the land boom in 1891, by the way, when the land boom turned to bust in Melbourne in the 1890s, property prices collapsed by 50% and in Sydney they collapsed by 25%. There are reasons why I'm quoting these particular figures to you at the moment. You'll probably figure it all out in a second. Between 1835 and 1891, it's quite an interesting period in human history. The Australian colonies did something that I can't find in any other period in human history. They quadrupled their GDP per capita. GDP per capita is a measure of living standards. So that's what happened to the Australian colonies between 1835 and 1891. We went from a blip at the bottom of the global income ladder to the world's richest people by the early 1850s, and we stayed there all the way through to the end of the 1880s. Now, the next 
best performing country in the 19th century on this measure, GDP per capita, was the United States, and the United States were only able to double their GDP per capita. We quadrupled ours. And when I say we were number one, we were a long way behind everybody in the 1830s. We passed the Americans before the gold rush, and then we passed the British during the gold rush, and we kicked clear in the 1860s and 70s. When I look at the data, and I spent a lot of time burying my head in this data, I couldn't believe that this was actually the story, because I figured somebody would have picked it up long before me, but they hadn't, fortunately or unfortunately, as the case may be. The single driver of our prosperity in the 19th century, over and above gold, wheat, wool, was migration. Migration was the thing that explained our success above anything else in the 19th century. Now, the reason why I mention this is it is a big part of the story in the 21st century that has allowed our economy to grow into its third decade without the interruption of a deep recession. Okay, setting the scene of Australia in the golden decades of the 19th century, think what happened the next 50 years when the White Australia policy kicked in. The White Australia policy, the first draft of the White Australia policy, is written in 1888 when the colonial premiers put their heads together and decided to ban all Chinese migration to Australia. And this is before the land bus, by the way. When the depression hit in the 1890s, Australia took 20 years to get out of it. Most other countries had a 10-year depression that decade. We had a two-decade-long depression. The reason why our depression ran for two decades, not one decade, was not the end of the gold rush, because there was literally another gold rush in the 1890s in Western Australia. It was the absence of migration. Australia had gone from being a big migration uh, host to a country about to become a federation, uh, telling people not to come. And, and this is where the data gets really, really interesting. And it, you don't need a PhD in econometrics to understand what this means. The 50 years that I described from, you know, our most open 50 years, we're the world's richest people. The first 50 years of the White Australia policy saw our income go from here to here. We were the weakest performing country on earth that, that is comparable, you know, comparing us to New Zealand, comparing us to countries of Europe, comparing us to the UK, comparing us even to Japan, and comparing us to the United States and Canada. In fact, in 1931, at the depths of the Depression, living standards in Australia in 1931 were lower, still lower, than they were in 1891 at the peak of the previous boom. Now, tell a politician this, they say, oh, must have been the terms of trade, or it must have been the tariffs, or it must have been something else. Now, in this 50-year period, and this period does take you all the way to the end of the 1930s, from the end of the 1880s to the end of the 1930s, we are the weakest performing economy in the world. The single thing that explains it is the absence of migration. Over that 50-year period, literally more people left Australia than, than came or, or passed away. Our population at the end of the 1880s looked a lot like it does today, with basically half the people are the first or second generation migrant. But in the next 50 years, we went from very diverse to very, very narrow-caste, white, Anglo country that was afraid of the rest of the world. Now, the reason why I, I, I dwell a bit in the data of the 19th century is that the before and after, the before, which is the open door, and the after, which is the closed door, 
There's something funny about Australia if you think it through. We're very good at being able to hold prosperity for a generation or two. In fact, literally, if you were born at the foundation of Melbourne in 1835, in those days, you wouldn't have lived long enough to see the entire boom. You'd have passed away on life expectancy in those days around the end of the 1870s, and there's still 10 years of boom to go. So your kids would have reached adulthood before the bust. Now, that to me, when I think about you know, long historical patterns, feels like the Australia we've been living in today. So if you entered the workforce after the recession we had to have, you'd be in your 40s now. If you entered the recession, if you entered the workforce after the recession we had to have in the early 90s, not that we should have had that recession, you are literally half the labour force in Australia. Half the workers in Australia today have never experienced a recession. There are a lot of things happening in the workforce today that aren't good for workers, but that visceral existential threat of not being able to put food on the table because you lost your job and there isn't another one, that isn't the lived experience of more than half the workforce in Australia today. So it does feel to me like there's a bit of an echo to the past. I think it's a big tick for us that we're able to hold, create and maintain prosperity for as long as we have. But the thing that concerns me now when I look at the political scene, and this is a concern I've had for about the last 10 or so years, the thing that concerns me now is that our politicians are starting to talk like our politicians talked in the 1880s. The next person who comes is going to take our bounty from us. This country doesn't have our interests at heart. Uh, we've already made enough money. The rest of the world owes us a living, words to that effect. Uh, now, I'm not going to pull specific quotes out because they do tend to get a bit repetitive, but a lot of the politicians that were preparing for federation in the 1880s are saying things that I've heard more recently from Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott, and even more recently, Malcolm Turnbull. This idea that the Australia that we've collected up until this point is, is as good as it'll ever be, and the next person probably shouldn't come here because we're afraid that the next person who comes here, as I say, is going to take our bounty away. Now, the difficulty with that attitude is your history tells you that once the door closes, once we try and cut ourselves off from the thing that makes us exceptional in good times, exceptional compared to the rest of the world, once you close that thing off, it's almost like you've closed the door on the little bit of magic that makes Australia function. And in fact, the interesting thing about this period that I've described in this previous book of mine, the White Australia period, that first 50 years of White Australia when our income collapsed, that's actually the period of greatest social unrest in Australian history. And what I mean by unrest, I mean the thing that we thought we could avoid by closing the door, i.e. importing tensions, ethnic tensions from Europe or from wherever or from Asia, that Australia that wasn't open to the world in the late 19th century and through the first half of the 20th century was bitterly divided between labour and capital. There were sectarian splits, the Protestant-Catholic argument. Uh, some people are probably old enough to remember it from their parents or their grandparents' generation. Australia was a very divided place. And one of the reasons I suspect we need to relearn that history is this idea that we can control the world as, because it's a pretty volatile world we're operating at the moment, this idea that we can control the world by stopping the things that we've been doing up until this point is somehow going to maintain cohesion in Australia. I think it actually risks the reverse. The cohesion in Australia 
and this is almost unique to Australia, and I think Canada's about the only other country on earth that can, that can make this claim, cohesion in Australia is actually reinforced by the continual arrival of people from the rest of the world. I think part of it is geographic, part of it is psychic. If we're not connected to the world through people flows, we're kind of, you know, literally, psychologically, we tend to fall off the edge. That's what our history tells us anyway. Now, what I'd like to do is drill down. Drill down into the data to give you the story in the last 15 years. And the story in the last 15 years, I'm, I'm only going to be drawing, I won't give you percentage points, because percentage points can be a bit bamboozling. I'm going to give you ethnic ladders. I'm going to give you ethnic, uh, an ethnic ladder nationally, which basically explains the Australia that's unfolding before our very eyes in this part, early part of the 21st century, in Australia that is literally Eurasian in its ethnic composition, and how that story doesn't actually match too many parts, individual parts of Australia. Now, the two cities in Australia that are literally Eurasian in their ethnic mix are Sydney and Melbourne. Now, the interesting thing about Sydney and Melbourne is the national story, the national story is, just under 30% are born overseas, and the really big immigrant groups, I'll give you the top five, the UK is still number one, but pretty much half the population from the UK living in Australia today are retirees, the median age is in the mid-50s. Number two are the New Zealanders, number three are the Chinese, mainland Chinese, I'm not counting Hong Kong in this one, number four are the Indians, number five are the Philippines. There's only one part of Australia that actually mirrors that top five. And if you were to guess Melbourne or Sydney, you'd be wrong. If you were to guess Brisbane, you'd be wrong. If you were to guess Adelaide or Perth or even Hobart, you'd be wrong. It's Newcastle. <laughs> Newcastle is the only town in Australia that actually looks like Australia. Except... <laughs> there I go. I, I realised there was a gag in data and it worked. Thank you very much. Now I've got to find it. <laughs> Newcastle, hang on, hang on, let, me, let me just dig out Newcastle because I will give you this particular point. Just under 30% of Australians obviously born overseas nationally, but in Newcastle the figure's around 10 or 12%. So Newcastle is still predominantly a local-born population centre, but that ethnic ladder, UK, New Zealand, China, India, the Philippines, they've got the top five. Now their top five, the interesting thing about that top five is they're only an hour and a bit up the road from here. Newcastle doesn't look anything like Sydney, which means that Sydney looks nothing like the rest of Australia. Rather than having just under 30% born overseas, Sydney has closer to 40% born overseas. And when you count in the kids of immigrants who are born in Sydney, who are born in Australia, sorry, who live in Sydney, two-thirds of the population of Sydney is either first or second generation. The last time any population centre in Australia had two-thirds first or second generation would have been Queensland in the 1870s, when it was still just opening up as a, uh, as a settler colony. Now, the ethnic ladder in Sydney is probably quite familiar if you spend enough time in Sydney. The Chinese are number one, and they're number one by a long way. The UK is number two. India is number three, and at the speed that India is climbing that ladder, they'll overtop the UK in the next 10 years, probably five actually, but let's say the next 10 years. New Zealand number four and the Vietnamese number five. So compositionally the top five is in the national top five, so the Vietnamese are above the Philippines, 
And the other thing is the Chinese are one, not three, in Sydney. And as I say, Newcastle is just an hour and a bit up the road, and it looks completely, completely different. The same thing happens between Melbourne and Geelong. It's almost an identical story. So Melbourne looks much more like Sydney than it does its nearest town, neighbour, Geelong. Melbourne and Sydney, there's only one or two cities in the world that are that ethnically uh, composed like Melbourne or Sydney, and that's London, New York, and to a lesser extent, Auckland. Now, these two cities, now I'll, I'll, I'll keep the story, I'll keep the story centred in Sydney. This particular city and, um, and Melbourne are the two cities, if you were designing a city from scratch to, to, to thrive in the 21st century, it would look like these cities. Now, in Melbourne, of course, it's not the Chinese that are number one, it's the Indians that are number one, by the way, and the Chinese are number two, and the Poms are number three. But it's only those two cities that look like that. Pretty much every other part of Australia is a variation of Brisbane, which is much whiter than the nation at large, and has more Kiwis, more South Africans than either Melbourne or Sydney. Now, this isn't a rundown Brisbane, this isn't a rundown Newcastle, this isn't a rundown Geelong, but if you think about what's drawing a skilled migrant to Melbourne or Sydney, it's the opportunity to start at the top of our social structure. Our migration program, in an annual sense, is settling about 190,000 people permanently a year. The average through the 80s and 90s would be between 80 and 100,000 a year. So we've doubled the number of migrants a year we've received. And if I guess which Prime Minister was the one that took it up to 190,000? It was Tony Abbott. It's another surprise there for you. And in fact, one of the reasons why we've scaled up our migration to the extent we have is that we are running what is called a, a demand-driven program. Essentially, employers, hospitals, not just business, hospitals, the public sector, tertiary education system, say, we need a foreigner to fill this place, or we need a foreigner, we want to educate a foreigner. And the minister, whoever the minister is, can't say, oh, look, we've set the target at 80. The economy says 190, the economy gets 190. But that extra 100,000 a year that we've been getting are skilled. Now, I don't mean skilled in the, they, they fill a particular job set. The new arrival in Australia typically today is younger than the population at large, is better educated than the population at large and has a higher earning potential than the population at large. And bear in mind what I'm telling you, most of them are clustering in Melbourne and Sydney. Now the gaps, the gaps not just in terms of the way these two cities look compared to the rest of the country, the gaps in education and, and, in, uh, and in income between Melbourne and Sydney and their respective states and the rest of the country are being accelerated by migration. Now, I say, that, I say that as a defender of big Australia, but the way the migration program is working now, it is accelerating inequality in Australia. Now, the way to fix it is not to cut migration. The way to fix it is to be well aware of the two things that, in the end, might create bubbles in the Melbourne and Sydney, and that is the property market. The way to fix it is to think about where you want people to settle. Now, this is a big thing for government to think about, and they're not that good at it. Now, 
know, people have been talking about decentralisation since the, believe it or not, the 1890s. And I read something that Henry Lawson wrote in the 1890s. He thought Sydney was full at the time. <laughs> and he thought <laughs> the colonial parliament should come up with some solution to the intense urbanisation of New South Wales, push people back into the bush. He probably thought there were more uh, book buyers out there than there were in Sydney, maybe not. But the decentralisation story has been something the politicians have thought about, something the poets have dreamt about for over 100 years. I actually think it's a story that needs a really good public debate because if you allow Melbourne and Sydney on its present trajectories to go from cities of four and five million to eight million each by the middle of the century, which they will, left, left to run on the energy that they're running on now, and you know that compositionally all the winners are located in these two cities, and a good portion of the winners are, are, are overseas born, and a good portion of the local born winners are first, second, third, fourth generation uh, high income earners, that's those two cities, I, New York or London, in an Australian context where Australians value the fair go and still believe in egalitarianism, that is going to be a monumental policy problem in the next 10 or 20 years to manage. And it's not something that politics can easily fix if you let it run too far ahead of, uh, of, of planning, not just physical planning, I mean planning about what sort of society you want, because if you let it run too far ahead of government's ability to be able to, um, to think their way through what some of the challenges are, and some of these challenges are all on the upside, they're not necessarily on the downside in the short term, if you do let it run ahead of itself, the electoral map is going to be skewed to Melbourne and Sydney anyway because that's where a lot of the people are going to be living. So elections are going to be decided in those two cities by the winners. Now, it's a good thing to think about if you're one of the winners, but if you're thinking about delivering services out in regional New South Wales or out in the southeast corner of Queensland or in a remote indigenous community or in a, you know, a post-mining bust town in Western Australia or in Hobart or in Devonport or in Adelaide, if you're thinking about delivering services there where most of the political energy is in Melbourne and Sydney, sadly, I'd say good luck. 20 years from now, it's going to be a very difficult thing to do. When you also think about what some of the public policy challenges are with the ageing of the Australian-born population and the pressures on the budgets, good luck trying to sort that out if you just let the market settle people as the market is settling people now in these two cities. Now, the argument that I've been trying to, um, I'm trying to get started in Canberra, and I do talk to a lot of public service servants about this, and I have discussed this a fair bit, in public service forums, is a government needs to, A, accept the surge in migration is for the good of the economy, but the surge in migration creates a different set of, of, uh, of responsibilities for government. That in an open economic model where the government says, I'm gonna let the private sector do everything, this is the last place for the government to maintain that fiction because the private sector is going to do what in Melbourne and Sydney? It's just going to put up apartment towers and then try and uh, flick the bill back to the motorist or flick the bill back to the, uh, to the parent sending their kid to school or flick the bill back to the parent send, uh, using the hospital system back to the via the private sector. 
Now, that particular story is already unfolding before our very eyes. There's been this argument in um, Canberra and in state governments as well. As much as I can get off budget, it looks great to the rating agencies. I would like to see a lot more things brought back onto budget. And one of the reasons I think things need to come back onto budget is that the challenges of servicing a population, a diverse population, that is growing rapidly in some parts of Australia and, and stagnating in other parts of Australia, the job of servicing that population requires a much more active government. Now, an active government doesn't mean the government intervenes in the market. An active government intervenes to make sure that the market doesn't continually muck things up for us. The market at the moment, as I say, is really only favouring the two cities. Most of, the, most of the economic growth we've had since the end of the mining boom is centred in Melbourne and Sydney, and, most of the, and, and, and the predominant driver of that growth is migration. Now, I can write a column for the New York Times say what a terrific national economic model this is, but it's not a national economic model that feels right to me, as someone who hopefully, like most people in this room, does believe in a fair go, it's not a model that feels right to me when the government says it's got nothing to do with me. I think it has everything to do with government. I think it has everything to do with government to make sure it gets ahead of population story in terms of infrastructure provision. I think governments need to get involved in working out what the sustainable number is along the coastline. And if it thinks that people are moving too quickly to particular areas and other areas have been overlooked, maybe it needs to think about changing the signals the price signals, as we call them as economists, to be able to send people somewhere else. I don't mean literally taking somebody off a plane and saying, you're going to Mordura or you're going to Burke, but what would you need to do, other than what Barnaby Joyce has been suggesting, which is moving one department to Armidale, what would you need to do to promote regional growth, to promote decentralisation? The other thing I think governments need to do, all levels of government need to think about this, and that is in health and especially in education. Education is quite an interesting, interesting dilemma at the moment for people. I'm not going to talk about the energy market because that's way too complex. That's another sign of systems failure at the moment. But if you think about the education system at the moment, and government after government has convinced itself that it could let this one-third to two-thirds story evolve where well, it's not even one-thirds, two-thirds in some areas. In Melbourne, it's closer to 60-40, uh, where a good portion of the middle class sends their kids to private school, leaving the public system as a default system. Now, the challenges of the skilled migration that's underway at the moment is that the kids in both the public and the private system, with governments not really caring about education in a way, they're trying to take it off the budget, those kids are going to struggle to keep up. Now, when that hits the political space in about 10 or 20 years, when you start to see gaps in achievement between middle-class kids and newly arrived migrants, again, it's going to be too late to have that debate. And in fact, at that point, the debate is going to be a nasty one, and it's going to be a white Australia kind of debate, whatever the 21st century manifestation of white Australia is. Again, these, these trends are, 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 are observable. It is pretty obvious what's happened in the last 15 years, there's been a step up in migration. It's pretty obvious that the quality of migrant is like no other migrant we've seen since the gold rushes of the 1850s. And we're actually absorbing them really well. But the challenges of a migrant that arrives at the top are a completely different set of challenges to the migrants of my parents' generation, who start at the bottom, 
who measure their climb up the income ladder via home ownership and then measure the success of the, their ultimate migrant journey through the educational attainment of their kids. That's a two-generation story which a lot of people in this room would be familiar with. That's not the story, that's not the predominant migration story in the 21st century. The predominant migration story in the 21st century is not my parents starting at the bottom, it's somebody arriving at the top, predominantly from China and India, but not just from China and India. A lot of the recent waves from Britain, uh, better educated than the population at large, South Africans, better educated than the population at large, Kiwis, believe it or not, last 15 or so years that the Kiwis actually have better education and uh, employment attainment than the population at large in Australia. So it is, it is a, a terrific story if you know how to manage it. At the moment, it is a terrific story being mismanaged, and it's a terrific story that may turn dark quickly for us if we can't almost retrain our politics, our politicians, to think in the way, and I always look for analogies for both sides of politics that aren't offensive to them. You know, I'd rather not say to Labor or to the Coalition, both of you sound like Billy Hughes. For those of you who understand what Billy Hughes did, the little digger who ended the First World War by telling the rest of the world to get lost. Not that guy. The people. The people I would like the present generation of politicians to draw some inspiration from are John Curtin, Ben Chifley, Robert Menzies and Harold Holt. And the reason those four matter is between the four of them, and this takes you all the way out to Holt's prime ministership in the late 1960s, they agreed at the time we first opened our doors after the Second World War that you needed to plan for it. And you wanted to be able to show something more than just the arrival of the migrant and ticking an ethnic uh, diversity box. You wanted to be able to show something more. You know, in those days, of course, they wanted to build a snowy, we wanted to make our own car. Um, whatever, the, whatever the 21st century dream is, I haven't seen it yet because I haven't seen a politician articulate it. But if they can think, if they can think like Curtin, Chifley, Menzies and Holt did, which is A, we're shooting for a big Australia and B, we're taking responsibility for it as governments and as political parties, you could go back into that long-term planning thinking, which I think has clearly been lacking in our public life in the last, well, where would you begin? Certainly since the turn of the 21st century, certainly since the bedding down of the GST, we haven't had either side of politics prepared to see through a big idea. Now, I'm not saying that they haven't had big ideas. We haven't had either side of politics prepared to see through an idea, which means after release, backlash, they don't say, no, this is serious, we're going to do this, and here's how we're going to figure it out. Normally what's happening, what is observable now in public life in the last 15 or so years is a big idea comes, for instance, carbon pollution reduction scheme or a mining tax or I have to think of something Malcolm tried to do recently or even Tony Abbott tried to do, but you do get the picture. Announcement, first microphone goes under the nose of the person who's saying no and the government says, oh, we don't want to talk about that anymore, let's go and talk about something else. Uh, that attitude, that attitude, uh, I actually don't think we've got away with it. I think we're starting to see the effects of that, um, of that particular short-termism. But that attitude, if, it, if, if we retained it for another five or ten years in our public life, 
is going to uh, unleash forces which are, as I'm trying to explain, are very, very difficult to pull back in. If you get inequality in a place like Australia and your inequality is sourced to just basically letting Melbourne and Sydney dictate the terms for the rest of the country. Now, I'm a Melbourneian, by the way, and I do love the city, but I would like everybody to have the same opportunity. And as I say, if you, if you let this thing run for too much longer, it's going to be very, very hard to sort of put Humpty Dumpty, egalitarian Humpty Dumpty, back together again. Now, I actually think I'm fascinated in the questions because I want to throw open the questions on any number of issues you want to talk about. I think in your work, you would, you would already intuitively grasp the difference, not just between hospitals and not even just between regions. Within a city like this, there's obviously a big diversity story, which is a diversity of opportunity story. And then once you get out into, into New South Wales proper, you've got another country. Now, it doesn't need to be like this, but I think, I think in... Uh, I think in the good work that you do, as many times as you can remind, whether it's your local member or whether it's the person who needs to refer up and report to a minister or to a bureaucrat, every time, think about, think about the difference in opportunity between patient A and patient B and tell them that this is not acceptable. And one of the reasons why it's not acceptable is the rest of the world we've seen We've seen our future 10 or 20 years from now in the Brexit and the Trump vote. We actually understand what happens when you allow that deregulated inequality reach a point of no return politically. Now, as I say, I think it'd be very difficult to produce a Trump or a Brexit election result in Australia because of Melbourne and Sydney, which is a cosmopolitan story, predominates, and we've got compulsory voting. But the feeling of disempowerment that led to a vote like that That'll be a good part. A, 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 an unhealthily large proportion of the Australian population would be feeling that in the next 20 or 10 or 20 years if you let this thing go any any longer. That, I'll throw to Norman if Norman wants to set me up for questions. I hope I haven't gone too deep into the detail, but uh, I'm looking forward to the we discussion. Thank you very much. For, um, George. <laughs> Thank you, John.